Hey, this episode of Podquisition opens with a conversation about recent allegations within the wrestling business, including sexual abuse, and we thought some people might just want to skip it. I certainly wish I didn't know. So if you want to miss that, jump to about 9 minutes and 40 seconds. Mm. Holy shit. Mm. I haven't read all of it. I'd heard that there was some stuff brewing, and then YouTube recommended me one uh, James Cornette. I don't know if you've heard of him, <laughs> but there was a, a lengthy discussion regarding one Vincent McMahon Jr., I've heard nothing of this. I what? thought you were just generally going Vince McMahon. Oh my god! You know, in, in a general sense, something has occurred. I had no idea an event happened. So a few months ago, Vince McMahon stepped down from WWE because he was paying a woman hush money, and right. that was a whole scandal, whole thing. Yeah, uh, because you know billionaire above the rules wwe no real ethics he snuck back in they got him like back on the board of like the the new parent company all of that shit yeah nothing fundamentally changing yeah now because vince mcmahon is the worst he stopped paying the hush money which was tied to an nda which meant his sexual assault and trafficking victim could go on the record which she has and oh my god, oh. this <clears throat> this is like the biggest, most jaw-dropping, like, bombshell, uh, and dark bombshell since, like, Chris Benoit. Like, this has rocked the entire fucking wrestling world, and the, the details are horrific. Like, Vincent McMahon always known to be a scumbag, always known to be a fucking rapist. Like, I've fucking, like, said as much in videos and stuff. Like, the only thing that, that separated him from a sex offender was the conviction. But the, the details are ghastly. Like, fucked up. It's one of those situations where you knew it was gonna be bad. Like, there's gonna be some bad shit in there, but the extent to how bad it was is a little remarkable. Yes. John Laurinaitis, uh, sort of former wrestler, ta talent relations guy there, is also implicated, as is Brock Lesnar, who also seemed to be uh, somewhat involved. Yeah, this is, like, he's, he's resigned from WWE, and it's it's like, I know what WWE's like. Maybe in, in a few years from now, they'll try and rehabilitate him. But for right now, this is about as done as a billionaire could ever be done. There are texts... And the things he says in them are, like, gross and embarrassing in equal fucking measure. Like, not to bring age into it, but there is that sense that, like, people have been saying, like, you're a 74-year-old man. And, like, the things he's saying to, like, this young woman, it is so fucking... Uh, to say nothing of, of what he did, like, just... Yeah, the details are out there, like, read or don't. I did. I don't know if I wish I had or I hadn't. But, you know, as someone who obviously follows a lot of wrestling and is um, a wrestler, like, 
this is the biggest thing going on right now, and I, I had to bring it up because it is just fucking hell. I can't imagine having enough money that I could afford to pay hush money on a story like that and make the decision, nah, I'm just going to stop paying that because fuck it, I have money, what do I care? I mean, that speaks to the entitlement, doesn't it? Like, that's such a... You had someone sign an NDA, then didn't uphold your end of, of that deal over shit as gross as this, like trafficking, assault, and that some of the things that like are involved within that us are their own kind of gross. Like, there's one incident in particular that I do not want to give voice to. Anyone who's read them is going to know what it is, but like, for, for as immature as Vince McMahon has sort of presented himself, my God. Like, to see that applied to a really, like, this kind of dark context, it's just, like, the guy is... All I'll say is, like, Janelle Grant is a fucking hero. That's the name of the the, the woman who came forward with everything. And I think, like, obviously this isn't what it's all about, but she's done more of a fucking good for wrestling than Vince McMahon ever fucking has. If If this, like, keeps him out. And he deserves this, like, he deserves his legacy, and, you know, there's not enough justice that it will, there'll be plenty of people being like, oh, let's remember the good he did as well, which, negligible. Um, But he (laughs) deserves to be remembered for this. This is how he should go down. I mean, the good he did for wrestling, my god, what, what does that even mean? Yes, it was popularized on national television to an extent, but he also consolidated the industry to such degree. So many jobs got lost, so many promotions just oh, yeah. swallowed up and destroyed. Like, he, he, we, he should not have been celebrated to begin with. So I hope that this is the final nail in the coffin that puts an end to all of that fucking shit. And it is, It is telling. It's worth pointing out. Vince being out is not going to fix WWE as an organization. Actually, Ronda Rousey, um, obviously, you know, fucking turf, truther, fucking all of that shit, like, fuck her as a person. But she has come out and said, like, Bruce Pritchard, who is, like, still an exec there and stuff, like, like high-ranking management over there. Ronda Rousey said, like, so long as Bruce Pritchard's still there, nothing's been done. Because right. he is just he's just an extension of Vince. And God knows how many others there are like gonna be that. The company's gonna be run by his son in law, you know? This came out and there was nothing from WWE for a few hours. And then Slim Jim stepped up and said, Yes, mm, we're gonna pull out. And then suddenly <laughs> Vince McMahon was gone. So let's not there is some grim poetry in that, in Slim Jim, like one of the brands most associated with WWE or F back in its heyday. Like, for that to be the stake through Vince's heart, which yeah. I would love to see him slowly killed <laughs> with, with a Slim, Slim Jim. Jim. <laughs> it would take days. Oh. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, holy fuck. Oh my God. It's obviously fucking awful it happened, but the fact it was happening, like, there were, there was accusations from a woman called Rita Chatterton. I remember them being a thing, like, like over 20 years ago, and they got swept under the rug and people didn't take it seriously. Like, this is known. So, as horrific as it is, as it is that it happened, the fact that it gets to stop at least, like, the shit Vince is doing, like, 
that's good news, ultimately, that he's been fucking stopped. So there is a, a weird sort of, of, not satisfaction, but because that's because, you know, I've been fucking horrified reading the stuff, but like, it's just fucking good that he's gone. There's very few things in this situation that you would describe as a win, but you you take the closest thing you can and you you take it. Here. Yep. Yeah, like the less involved, like anyone like him is. Like I've I've gone as far as to say on this podcast that it would be better if Bobby Kotick died tomorrow. Like, um, and the only regret I have there is it would be even better if he died today. You know, and that's true of of any of these billionaires, and it's even more true of Vince McMahon. His his existence in the world, not just what he's done for wrestling or what have you, his existence in the world is a net negative. He has taken so much and killed people. Like, let's not forget that. Through negligence or or, or what have you, like, let's just give, like, say that as the most charitable read. He has done so much harm and brought the business to its knees and he has hurt so many people and this is how he should go down. Plus the weird pencil moustache thing as he's doing now is one of the biggest crimes against humanity it's been pointed out by um by folks by like phoenix uh said it as well like he looks like santa cohen like he's dressed like he should be in rapture and that he's already like lost his fucking grip because I said Andrew Ryan at first, because like there is a bit of that style, but then like he was like, no, 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 that's fucking Santa Cohen, and yep. <sighs> well, there's very little good segue away from this and into video games, but I'm gonna forcefully make. Yeah, one sorry. Happen. The only other thing I had was I was gonna come up with with my um, pitch for a Last of Us spinoff called uh, The Goat of Fuck, but realized <laughs> several seconds before like hit and record that wasn't gonna work a game about <laughs> taking a goat from oregon to new york to be horny there's there's no joke in that as a parody of the last of us and there's no joke in that as its own merit like on its own thing no but you know what there is some some jokes in i'm just saying comedy can be done with a <laughs> horny goat laura but i'm not the girl to do it i'm out of my depth <laughs> Please save uh, us. Save, I, save me. I was tr- yeah. I tried. I had an exit ramp. I had I had a good segue to like a Dragon Infinite I Wealth, know. a game that has jokes in it, and I, you shut it down. I was stood in the hole, and dicking gets so compelling after a while. Uh. Like, I'm going to hand the shuffle over to you. <laughs> like a Dragon Infinite Wealth. <laughs> I'm fucking obsessed with that video game. It's fucking amazing. I love this video game so much. Right, you should tell us about it instead of like talking yeah. to me about fucking well, that's goats. What I'm, that's for what God's I'm trying sake. to do. It's what I'm just what I'm trying to do. Like a Dragon, the name that the Yakuza games have always had in Japan. They changed the series name over here in England with I think it was Yakuza Seven. They just called Like a Dragon. That was the one that first introduced a new protagonist called Ichiban and the RPG version of the series, rather than it being sort of action brawlers and that first like a dragon a few years ago i really enjoyed it was not without its problems it was you know there were some aspects of the rpg mechanics in it that felt you could see that this was a team that hadn't made an rpg before making their first rpg and i'll talk about some of the things that have changed from that first one in a second but generally i really fucking liked it i i think it is my favorite game in the in the yakuza series having played through basically all of them at this point because i think it gets for me the balance really right of what i want out of yakuza as a series in that that first ichiban rpg like like a dragon 
really does nail that sort of like serious, gritty crime drama when it needs to. The balance between the very serious and the very, very silly that the Yakuza series has always had just skews a little more on the silly side. There's a little more density of the wacky over-the-top nonsense, and that balance works better for me. I very much enjoy Ichiban as a protagonist. I think he is very sincerely lovable, and I just want everything to be okay for him in this very serious crime world where everything is going wrong around him at all times. Very, very lovable hero. Uh, like a Dragon Infinite Wealth has just come out, and I have sunk, I think, like, 35 hours into it in, like, four days. Um, my god, I think this game is is amazing. It's not without its flaws, it, it's got a couple of little things I'll talk about in a second, but it takes everything that the first RPG, Like a Dragon, did well, and builds upon it really nicely. Um, from a very basic perspective... Uh, there's a lot of changes to the RPG systems that I think are very much to this game's benefit. Um, uh, in the first Like a Dragon, any uh, there was one job class for one character where if you did regular melee attacks, you would build back up your, your magic meter, basically, for doing your big special skills. Now, every character with every job class just gets that as default, so you're constantly building back up your magic reserves when you do regular attacks. Regular melee attacks are much more useful and diverse in how they, they work. Anytime you're in this little turn-based combat system and it goes to a character's turn, you get a little circle around them, and you can walk around within that circle to activate certain context-specific prompts that might be, if I go, you know, stand o over here, I, a little arrow will show me if I punch that enemy, they'll fly in this direction and maybe hit another enemy, dealing them damage as well. If I walk over to where that sort of traffic cone is within the circle and press the, the attack button, I'll pick that item up, and there's a little icon to say you'll pick this up and beat them over the head with it. Maybe if you go stand next to another party member who's within the circle, you'll do a team-up attack and you'll go both attack together for a single action. That little bit of added positioning flexibility, alongside things like no longer taking attacks of opportunity if you choose to attack an enemy that requires you to run past an enemy on the way mean that you have a lot more like ability to set up nice chains of actions that make your basic bog standard attacks feel more fulfilling on top of just being a way to build back up your your magic reserves that does a great deal for making the combat feel more involved moment to moment. I think it strikes a really, really good balance between traditional turn-based combat and some of the elements that were a little bit lost in the first Like a Dragon compared to uh, previous protagonist Kiryu's repertoire. It makes it a lot easier to do things that take advantage of the setting you're fighting in, and that is really nice. I very much enjoy the new setting. This new game is set in Hawaii, and I think they have done a really, really, really good job of making Hawaii not just feel like aesthetic set dressing, but as a very justified location, not just for a series about Japanese crime syndicates that wants to take place outside of Japan, but also in terms of being very respectful to Hawaii as a location that has its own its own issues that often people don't talk about enough. I was very impressed at how, frankly, this game will talk about things like 
the way that the United States uses Hawaii sometimes as a dumping ground for homeless people they don't want to deal with, and how the high cost of living in very industrialised, tourist-focused areas of Hawaii added on top of homeless people sort of being transplanted there who do not have the money to leave, creates a very specific dynamic in the area, talking about the ways that the United States generally mistreats Hawaii in terms of a lot of different cultural aspects. There is a real seeming understanding of Hawaii as a place of its own that is very often mistreated by a lot of the different groups that have a stake in it, and I really enjoy how well they have made that feel like an important part of being in that space. There is a lot of really nice like little quality of life things that I very much appreciate in terms of it's a very big open world map, but there is a lot of different ways to fast travel around it, to get around it a little bit quicker, to minimise random battles if you don't want to be encountering them. There is a really good density of content to be found. I am constantly overwhelmed by how many fully voice acted, lengthy, mechanically intense minigame side quests there are to stumble upon. And particularly, I think something that's really stuck with me about this one is the number of times I have done two seemingly unconnected side quests, and then later found a new side quest that turns out, surprise fucker, those two side quests were two separate branches building to this one over here. There is so much interplay between seemingly unconnected stories that turn out to be parts of a larger whole that will pop up later. The world feels like all of the events happening within it exist within a wider context, which I don't know many RPGs full stop that have that kind of interconnected nature between their side quests, making these recurring characters end up intertwining and being part of larger stories of their own. Some of which, there are times where I've gone into a side quest and gotten 75% of the way through it before going, oh fuck, this is part two of that side quest from back there, isn't it? Fuck, you got me. I am real blown away by some of the bigger side quest content in this game. I don't think it's too spoilery to talk about a couple of them that have been talked about in trailers. There is a very fully featured Pokemon mode in this game, where you... Anytime you do a random battle with just guys on the street, you occasionally get an opportunity to offer them a box of sweets and like plead to them and go, do you want to join my fighting team? It'd be one of my little fight guys. And you just collect up these little fighting men to go do a pretty well thought through Pokemon side quest. Once you unlock this side quest, there's fucking Pokemon trainers on every fucking corner, there's raid battles and Pokestops everywhere, and you're going around, like, evolving your, your little team of fight guys for this combat system that is not just Pokemon, it's doing stuff of its own. You've got these three-on-three three, three, on three battles where there's a fairly simple type system going on, like fire beats, fire, water, and grass is a triangle, and light and dark have strength and weakness against each other. But you've got these three-on-three -three battles where you're basically once per turn able to swap the position of two of your, your little fight guys to better position where you're going to be dealing super effective damage and trying to sort of outmaneuver position on type advantage that takes place in this whole thing with like, go battle the, 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 the gym leaders and go eventually go fight, not the elite four, go fight the discreet four. Uh, these these very flashy people I would not describe as discreet at all, on your way to become the Sujimon Master. There is a Animal Crossing side mode that I 
I'm like eight hours deep into, and then I realize that it crosses over with the Pokemon side quest. The Pokemon side quest and the Animal Crossing side quest are now interlinking in fascinating ways. The Animal Crossing mode is more interactive in many ways than actual Animal Crossing. It's, it is a full-featured Animal Crossing, but with a storyline about people trying to dump toxic waste on an island, and you having to go do little combat quests to like fight off the the people trying to use it as a, as a trash dump while you're trying to build up your, your little community. There is so much game in this game that I keep getting distracted for very long periods of time from the fact that there is a very intense crime drama going on, and it's a very good, very intense crime drama going on. But every, you know, I'll I'll do one little bit of story and then get sidetracked for half an hour doing a Tinder matchmaking side quest where I get catfished by a chicken. Is it Chicken Boo from Animaniacs? That's my first thought. It's my only thought. I won't be dissuaded from the thought. Look, if you want to if you want to picture it that way, go right ahead. But you're not a man, you're a chicken boo. <laughs> Fucking brilliant. My character got got catfished by a chicken and his first his first question was I'm just impressed. How did you use the smartphone screen? Amazing. I'm like, hmm. This this game's the game's writing has been so on point. It has been constantly very, very charmingly written. I love this game. I think it's fantastic. It's done a lot to address most of the little complaints I had about the first Like a Dragon, and just really ramp up everything that worked. The biggest thing I would caveat about it, and the biggest thing I will say up front is, it does an alright job of, like, if you wanted to jump straight into this one, you could. I don't think you should. I think you should play the, the first Like a Dragon with Ichiban first, but the Yakuza games have always had a bit of a problem with taking a little while before they take the, the training wheels off. They always have a very linear start of, here is lots and lots of plot and cutscenes, and here's a very linear section, and then you're going to go into more plot and cutscenes. And the narrative setup is good. It's not unenjoyable. But when I usually when I talk about the Yakuza series and I say they take a little while to let you get going, usually I'm talking like two hours. I think it's closer to five in this one. And it's all very good content in that first five hours, but it is five hours where you are largely doing a very linear path before it finally goes, okay, here's a big open map, go start exploring silly, silly nonsense. That should dissuade me in a huge way, because the thought of spending five hours before the game opens up is, I mean, that's a whole game for me in a lot of circumstances. But at the same time, prior to starting recording, you suggested to me that I needed to go and play the last Like a Dragon RPG game before I played this one, so maybe that shouldn't be as effective on me. I mean, look, this one starts with Ichiban being like, he's the hero of the town for that thing he did. Here is all of his friends that you definitely know aren't invested in. I think his first adventure is very worth playing, but yeah, that five hours, I don't think it's bad, and I think in the grand scheme of things, there's a lot of groundwork this wants to set up before it goes too off the rails, and it goes so far off the fucking rails that I think there is benefit to having a portion of time in which it's like, cool, we're just gonna win, we're just gonna sit you down and do crime drama for a minute. We're good, we've established the crime drama properly. We've established it enough that you're gonna remember it when you spend the next ten hours not engaging with it. Cool, off you go. 
<laughs> and I don't think that's the wrong choice for them to have made, but I was surprised at how far in I got before there was an open map and I could choose what to do. For me, this is the peak of the Yakuza series. This is the one that has done the best job of mechanically and narratively giving me what I want out of this series. It has had a fairly, like, it has not had an overly convoluted uh, crime drama plot. The crime drama plot has been, like, very concise and well, well delivered. The silliness is walking that line well of not being disrespectful, of being silly in ways that, like, build to something meaningful. There's no good way to talk about a thing I want to talk about without spoilers, so I'm going to be as spoiler light as I can. There's a side quest I started where a man wanted it to snow, despite it being summer in Hawaii, because his wife's dying and she wants to see snow before she dies. And I start doing this quest, and hours later I get a little pop-up on my map that says, go over here and you can continue that quest. And I go to continue that quest, and a stroller gets away from a woman and I have to chase it down the street. And I'm chasing after this stroller going, I have no idea how this is in any way to do with making it snow in summer. And the events that followed that, I could not have predicted any of where it went. that quest went. It was hilarious, not mean-spirited, incredibly sweet and touching in a very weird way. This game does a really good job of, even if you think you know what you're walking into, going... We're going to put a thing in front of you and you're going to have no idea what, why this is relevant and then it's all going to click into place very satisfyingly. I'm very impressed with this game. I like it, that. It is, it's very much for me. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I will play it. I do not promise I will play the first one, but... No, um, yeah. look, if, if you don't want to play the first one, I can give you the... the like, you could go find some pretty good su- summaries. Yeah, I'm sure it, I can. Well, they, did, they used to include them with the games, but I guess they don't do that anymore. Yeah, they want you to play the first one before the second one. Gosh, how, how dare they? <laughs> look, just give me a 90-minute collection of every cutscene from the game. That's all I need. I mean, they don't need to do that. YouTube will do that for them. It's true. Yeah, if nothing else, go watch, like, cutscenes on YouTube, but it's, this second one is, it is such a good RPG. I'm having such a good time with it. I can't put down this stupid Animal Crossing mode. It's way, way more in-depth than it should be. I built a porn video rental shop on my Animal Crossing island. It was a big success. Everyone's very happy they can rent porn on my Animal Crossing island. Nice. Yeah. What what about you both? What have you played this week? I went and picked up Metroid Dread a couple of weeks ago. Because, Ooh. yeah, well, when it came out, I acquired it because that was a at one of the points where emulation was suddenly being talked about as getting pretty good and, and Dread had leaked and it was a big thing. So I figured now was a good time to explore Switch emulation and... Uh, and then I just didn't actually get back to doing it and playing Metroid mm. Dread. So I did. And it is a very good Metroid game. It took a little bit to settle into. Mm. Samus moves faster than I remember her moving historically. Yeah. Coming to grips with sort of just the, the pace of, of movement in this was, was, uh, 
took a little adjusting to. But I love the approach that they take to secondary weapons and how they're mapped on the controller, even though, again, mm-hmm. it took some adjusting. Once you get the feel for how all of that works, it does flow together very well. I was a bit concerned... You know, when the dash comes in and I'm, you know, using left trigger to roll and missiles on right bumper and uh, and then suddenly now I've got a grapple beam on the right trigger. I'm like, this is a lot. Like, this feels like a lot. But it it, it worked out pretty well. Consolidating missiles uh, in the way that it does was very nice. Mm how every missile ability just sort of stacks on top of each other. I like the Emmys conceptually. Yes. And I think there's some really good, good ideas attempted in it. I love that last stand attempt where you get two opportunities to time that uh, reaction. Yeah, if you can get your your frame perfect parry in, you get your little escape attempt. Yes, as much as I want the window for that to be a tiny bit wider than it is, I really respect that it's not. Yeah, the game wants you to never n- be relying on it. It wants you to never be seen by them in the first, or g- never get touched by them in the first. Yes, place. and the checkpointing is reasonable enough in those segments. That it's never a huge burden, you know. Uh, mm. the, the sequences are quick and it might get frustrating to do it over and over again until you get it right. But there is always a, a method and an approach that if you poke around a little bit, you'll find the way to dispatch them conveniently. I think the level design in those aspects and and by and large throughout the game is really really good the map design i kind of struggle with a bit because there are so many points of entry and egress out of each of the zones between Mm. the teleporters and the trams and the elevators and all of that and there's a point in the like latter 20 percent of the game where the map is indicating to you precisely where you need to go. You should have that area revealed on the map, and there is no clear indication whatsoever of how you're supposed to get there in the region. Because you have to go to some other region and find a a teleporter that takes you to another region, and then another one that eventually will bring you back there after you've gone through, like, four other places. Hmm. And... That's a a bit frustrating, um, but great boss designs. Yeah. The Mockins, the uh, sort of Chozo warriors that you wind up fighting at intervals throughout, and the progression of their difficulty, those are all really satisfying mid-boss fights that scale along with everything else in the game in, in a really effective manner. The difficulty scaling on the whole is is excellent in this, even if that last boss fight is just bananas ridiculous what it is expecting <laughs> you to accomplish in a sequence of events. It's doable, but damn, they make you work for it. And yeah, 
I, I really liked Metroid Dread a lot. I liked the integration of the X elements, bringing that back in from from Fusion and making that really central and, and how their inclusion changes a lot of the combat balance in the latter half of the game. And it, it really just good Metroid. And if they never made another Metroid, that'd be fine. Which, it's it's one of those series where you never really know how committed Nintendo is to it. So this could be the last one, and and I'd I mean, be alright with that. in theory, they've been making Prime 4 for the last, oh, I what, don't seven years? But that's a completely different series, you know, <laughs> yeah, for yeah, me. I, yeah. And uh, I, I, I have played a little bit of some Prime games, but I don't think I've finished a single one of them. Here's the thing, if they're still trying to make Prime games... I don't doubt we'll get another 2D Metroid, because Metroid Dread, like, critically and financially did very well. Like, it did better than the Primes do, and if they're still not giving up on Prime, I suspect we'll see more of this. Fair enough. I'll be looking forward to it, if on whatever console it comes out on, whether it's the Switch 2 or the one after that. <laughs> what about you, Steph? Uh, I guess I'll start with the new one. Um, Grand Blue... Fantasy Relink, I think it's called. Uh, this is an RPG, like an action RPG. It is, re- well, it's a Grand Blue game, um, very much like Grand Blue Fantasy Versus that I played uh, a couple of weeks ago, the fighting yeah. game we talked about. And they're all based on some mobile game that I have never played and can't play because I think it's maybe Japanese only. I know I can't get it on my phone. There's also an anime. Now, I played the fighting game, didn't know what the fuck was going on, started watching the anime, got two episodes in, got bored, stopped watching. Played this RPG, hoping that might help me understand a little bit more, but that takes place in a different time period to the anime or the fighting game, Uh so I still don't know what the fuck's going on, because all the characters have long moved past introductions. But as a game, it's fine. Kind of live-action battles, you directly control a party leader of a party of four. They're all characters that are familiar to me from the fighting game now. All have different skills. There seems to be quite a lot of them. You start with, like, over half a dozen of them. And they're all playable, and they all play a little bit different. And they've all got skills on cooldowns, all that kind of thing. The kind of Tales sort of gameplay, I guess. And it seems fine. Battles are nice and quick, paced. The boss battles drag a bit. The moment-to-moment action is nice and quick, but, like, health bars. Very chippy. Bosses can take way too long than feels fun. But I've I've not got too far in. I played the demo a while back, and I've mostly just been skipping my way through cutscenes to get past the demo progress uh, that I'd already made, because it wasn't saved. I'm enjoying it, I reckon. It ain't bad. It's very straightforward, the kind of action RPG, if you've played any of those sort of, like, tales or... or... Like mana? Yeah, like that kind of stuff. If you like that, this'll do ya. It's more of that. Like, the the sort of anime-flavoured action RPG stuff. I'm not disliking it. I can't stand some of the voices, of course. It's got one of those little fucking mascot-y things that squeaks about. Mm. Little red dragon-looking thing that I just want to drown... Like, I just want to push its head into a bucket of water and just hold it down until it, like, I, I feel the last twitch. Like, I'll check to see if it's come. Once it's done that, like, I'll know that it's just sort of, like, everything's relaxed. It's dead. It's dead. <laughs> it's done. 
That's what I think of that. Well then, I played a weird, interesting little thing that I don't quite know how to cl- classify. It it's definitely a game, but it's definitely not. It, it's not a, a straightforward game. So I, I played a thing called uh, on PS5 this week called Interaction Isn't Explicit. And it is a free game that's maybe half an hour long that is a game developer's attempt to do what I think would usually otherwise be the realm of, like, YouTube video essay about the difference between implicit and explicit game design and the pros and cons of both and why certain design styles are used by certain kinds of games for what reasons, but done as an interactive experience. Basically, it is a, it is definitely a playable game, but it is a playable game that is explicitly trying to teach game design uh, concepts by showing you different examples that work and don't and why and referencing other games and how different things are done in in, in other existing games. I'm trying to think of a good example because I don't want to say too much about like the, the specifics of this because it is as short as it is. But one example might be there is a section of the game in which you are given use of a Far Cry style grapple versus a Sekiro style grapple. And it references both of those by name as it sort of lets you play around with one style for traversing one section and a different one for traversing another one. And has gameplay mechanics around those while teaching you about, like, this feels different to this because it's putting this control in the player's hands versus not. Here's why you might not always want to do that. Here's why you might want to do so. It is very unafraid to directly point at other video games and go... Yeah, this is why that moment fucking sucks, and why it's bad. There is an explicit pay F to pay respects moment in there that is not just ha ha the meme. It's like, yeah, 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 I get the meme, but like, let's stop stop and talk about like game design philosophy, why you should never do press F to pay respects, why you will always get mocked for doing so. It has a lot of ideas of its own, and I am impressed at how much of it is its own game and not just other things it is referencing. And it makes some solid points by using its own context to apply things it has discussed throughout other bits of the game. It does effective work with taking mechanics away from you in order to sort of contrast when a game will or won't let you do certain things, how does that feel? I wish there was a physical release of this, because this is digital only and one day this will not be downloadable, and I think this needs preserving for game development courses in the future, because it is a really good, concise lesson on game design principles that is interactive and direct and puts various principles in your hands to go, this feels good when paired with this because this, when we do it in a different context, it doesn't work, why is that? It is a think piece about game design that I might not agree with every conclusion it comes to, but I think it is so much stronger by virtue of putting control in your hands while discussing the merits and issues with different amounts of control players can be given. It's like half an hour long. It's not strictly a game, but it is a game about what we consider gameplay, quote-unquote, that I think is well worth looking into. I think... 
there is real merit to teaching game design principles in an interactive format like this, and I think there is something pretty special here to be experienced. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. If you've if you've got a PS5 and half an hour, interaction isn't explicit. It's 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 free. It's like half an hour long. It's a little tiny bit janky in places, but I think that can be forgiven for what it's achieving. There is implication that this person might make more things like this to try and teach game design concepts through interactive media. I really hope they do. I hope this creator does more like this. I think it is a very good way of teaching things that if you are a game player, you might not have had to think about why certain games make the choices they do. So yeah, um, short little thing, but I think it's well worth checking out. Uh, Conrad, what about you? Have you played anything else this week? I, I do want to point out the the guy who is the developer of Interaction Isn't Explicit shares a name with the actor who portrayed Bob in Twin Peaks, and that's just weird. <laughs> that is indeed weird. Um, also weird. After I finished playing Metroid Dread, um, I was, you know, I I wanted to find something else to play, and I was really, really, really struggling. Like, I was just in a strange funk where nothing seemed appealing, and I popped up Game Pass, and I found a game that recently released on there. It's It's a roguelite, and... It's very flashy and 3D and brightly colored, and it seemed like it might be exhausting. But I downloaded it anyway because, amusingly, it also has a morph ball mechanic. Uh-huh. And it's called Go Mecha Ball. It is a top-ish down third-person shootery roguelite. There's a story loosely laid out at the beginning you're a cat in a group of cats that like to have fun and their planet winds up in some sort of i don't know dimensional thing and in order to escape they build a mech and so you're a cat piloting this mech and one of the features of the mech for mobility purposes is that it can transform into a ball and roll around it's a lot faster for one thing and the other thing is when you're in ball form you can take advantage of pinball-like ramps, accelerators, and bumpers that are in the environment. And so the way the game plays, you have a firearm and you can roll into this ball. And when you're in ball form, when you pull the trigger that you would normally shoot your gun with, you boost in the direction that you're moving and can deal damage on collision with that. So these are your two basic forms of attack. Your guns, for which you can have two at a time and switch between them. They have limited ammo. Every gun has limited ammo. And then this collision maneuver, which collisions can be caused by being in a boost speed, accelerated state, either because you boosted yourself with the attack or because you've hit some sort of environmental object that accelerates your speed, and then a collision will do damage at that point. You can also do collisions by landing on top of enemies, and there are a lot of environmental elements that will just launch you into the air, and you can bounce from one enemy to the next. You can get two collisions off of each boost up into the air. What's interesting about this is these collision attacks... Um, When you kill an enemy with a collision, that's how you get your ammo for your guns. So there is a push and pull 
inherently set up to where you can't be overly reliant on your guns. You have to deploy this physical attack, um, at least on some level, in order to be successful, which is neat. Uh, enemies have a little exclamation point that will appear above their head before they perform an attack. If you can collide with them prior to their attack executing, it's called a denial. And that will also drop ammunition in addition to dealing damage. So a lot of the game is sort of pinballing around in ball form from one group of enemies to the next, eliminating them as quickly as possible in order to maintain a combo meter, which is incredibly generous. I love the combo meter in this game. A lot of times you'll get them in roguelikes where if you take a hit, you lose the combo. Or, you know, you, you spend too much time out of combo combat, you lose the combo. And that's the case in this. But the combo stops counting down if you're in the air. So you can learn the levels, use the environments and the things that exist in them to your advantage to traverse from one end of the map to another to reach a distant enemy that you might have missed or a group of enemies that are just you hadn't gotten to yet without losing your combo. And once you learn how to execute some of these maneuvers and maximize the use of the combo to get more in-game currency uh, for the shops that are between the levels, it, it snowballs very effectively. In addition to your guns, you can also get abilities. I haven't really mucked about with these. There's always this kind of element in these games where uh, I wind up ignoring it almost completely because it's just one more thing to think about and I'm doing fine with what I've got. But those are available. There's a whole range of weapons of different types. You've got rocket-based weapons, disc-based weapons that have bouncing projectiles laser-based weapons and standard bullets and they come in different varieties of shotgun or rifle or you know machine gun types even within those groupings so there's a fair bit of variety for those and then in between each stage of enemies which has three waves you'll get to choose between three items that will have upgrades or um, different abilities that you can add to your arsenal, so it builds up over time. Some of them are incredibly powerful, depending on your approach. There's one that I particularly like that increases the amount of damage you do on collisions based on what your combo is. So I can bounce from a few enemies, dramatically increase the amount of damage that I'm doing as I eliminate them, and it gets to the point where everything's a one-hit kill, once I'm maxed out. Um, really cool development paths for these. Uh, in levels, you get currency that's spent between games to unlock these upgrades and weapons and abilities for distribution through the pool in between levels. Um, there's also four unlockable characters and uh, all of that's just, it's, it's a smooth progression. Nothing's too expensive or feels terribly out of reach. Prices do increase over time, but not in such a way that uh, that feels painful. The difficulty spike can be dramatic, uh, not necessarily between stages. Uh, there's a boss at the end of every three groups of stages. You'll fight a boss, and and those are challenging. They've got good patterns. 
once you beat the set of four stages and complete the cycle once, it allows you to increase the difficulty. And it feels very reasonable if challenging. Some inconsistency in the difficulty of the bosses. Like the third boss is very, very easy as compared to the one before it. They're fine. Once you go to that second difficulty setting, that first boss is so much more difficult than it was the first time that it's it it's shocking how big the spike is. And uh, I think I've only managed to beat that first boss once or twice, even though it's not even a challenge uh, on the lower difficulty setting. I think that's fine because the baseline difficulty is challenging, but not so challenging as to feel unreasonable that I'm willing to give it a a pass on making the next level so much harder on this boss because yeah all right i've already finished it technically i'm i'm in if i've played enough to clear that cycle and be dealing with this i'm enjoying myself i'm invested i think it's a good game i i, I think it's a satisfying experience on its own i don't know how compelled i'm going to be to keep playing as difficult as it is cuz it's just brutally hard as compared to what came before but it is very fun the music the music i like the sound design itself like it tries to implement pinball sound effects in it and it's kind of cute but it also just kind of winds up a cacophony uh of a lot of kind of indistinct noises at times i also think that the third set of levels generally speaking is a little less refined than some of the others they have platforms in them that seem to really only be reachable by one approach, which is very different from the rest of this, the level design, that just about everything has at least two ways that you can reach a higher platform or uh, elevated area to deal with enemies that will spawn there. And in the third batch of stages, there's just a couple of layouts that seem contingent on this is the one path you have to get up there and it's not even like the easiest route you could have designed to get up there so it can be a bit frustrating and fiddly to deal with um, but other than that i really like this game it's a solid little roguelike it's it's conceptually cute but it, it's not doesn't have a whole lot of set dressing. It's just go in and bounce around and shoot things. And it's fun. Uh, I played it a bunch on stream. And I do recommend checking it out, especially if you have Game Pass. Uh, go Mecha Ball. It, it's fun. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. What about you, Steph? You played anything else? I mean, I finished The Last of Us 2, but <clears throat> I, I put it on our list of of games because I thought I might have something to say. But I don't think I do. That's fair. Sometimes you have nothing to say. Yeah, I wrote a review on thedreamquisition.com. I'm very pleased with it. Because I think I've worked out that as much as I like... And I do like The Last of Us as a series. I like both games. But I just don't like it as much as I like bagging on it. As much as I like <laughs> making fun and trolling with it. But I do that quite a bit in the review. But the second half of the review at like the back end makes a lot of points that sort of give voice to some of my frustrations with the series and the way sort of people talk around it. So yeah, that's on thegymquisition.com. 
So do check that out. Yeah. Uh, should also hopefully have a review up soon of uh, Turnip Boy Robs a Bank, uh, oh. which I um, I've gotten on the last run of, but I'm annoyed by that last run. I find it annoying, uh, but I have loved the game still. Fucking great game. There we are. Like played the Last of Us. Really got nothing to say about it. I've got one quick one to to mention. I don't have a lot to say about it other than that it's good and it's worth checking out and it's free. Are either of you aware that there is a Nintendo 64 demake of Celeste that got put out for free this week? I know because it was on your list of played games, but I hadn't heard. Yeah, apparently it was thrown together in a week to celebrate the sixth anniversary of Celeste, which also makes me go, oh god, that game's six years old. No! But yeah, it is a... N64, like, uh, specifically, like, Mar- like uh, Mario 64-looking 3D platformer Celeste experience. And it is a fairly small, isolated environment, but with non-linear exploration to find little collectibles sprinkled throughout of it. Rather than being, like... You know how Celeste was discrete screens with, like, a checkpoint in between each one, and, like, each screen is its own one very isolated puzzle? Right. This is much more like you've been dropped into a Mario 64 map and it's like, hey, I know there's like however many stars to collect in this map, but I can kind of just wander around and like work out which one I'm going to go for and how. But while trying to translate the Celeste moveset as best it can to 3D in terms of, you know, your sort of uh, jump and your ability to grab onto surface walls and your little dash that recovers whenever you touch the ground, all of those do transfer well to 3D. It does not play as tightly as the 2D side-scrolling one because there's no way it could. There is no world in which a 3D perspective was going to work quite as well at precision platforming. But to make up for that, you get a lot of like larger platforms than you strictly need to accommodate for the fact that you are in 3D now and that you are jumping around in 3D, and you are not going to be doing quite such pixel-perfect precise landing necessarily. I think that is to its benefit. But yeah, it's just a little sandbox environment to go find these little strawberries hidden around by jumping and dashing. It's it, like aesthetically very cute, but it plays nicely. It's just a fun little dose of the things that make Celeste work examined through a different lens. It's nothing world-changing, but it's well worth playing around with. Also, I have one more thing to say about Like a Dragon Infinite Wealth, because I might have been playing some of the uh, Animal Crossing mode while we're recording today, because, you know, I'm I'm hooked. And I, I have to tell you a thing, because it's broken me. You know how in Pokemon, you some of the new Pokemon games have given you a mechanic where you can, like, wash and scrub your Pokemon, like, put soap on them and rinse them off and whatever. I find that uncomfortable in Pokemon when the Pokemon is too human. <laughs> yeah, no, that mechanic exists <laughs> in this with the the fucking Pokemon, but it's just grown men. There was a man dressed like a palm tree, and I had a button that said praise, and I thought I was just going to tell him he did a good job, and then it was like, no, start rubbing him with your hand to tell him he did a good job. I have never your wanted palm to play a man. game more. Right? It's little shit like this that, like, every time it does something like this, I'm like, oh, I love you. You are you are the best. Mm-hmm. You are the best game. I gave a rub down to a palm tree man, and he kept saying words at me, and it was a bit, it was a bit unsettling, but in a good way. <laughs> uh, so if that's everything we've played, should we rattle off a couple bits of news? Let's and then do be it. Done? I don't see why not. Yeah. Um, 
I don't think we talked about this uh, last week. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Did we talk about Xbox and ABK having layoffs last week? Mm, no, I don't, I don't know. Think They're all so. starting to blur into each other. Like, right. like I, Wait, I don't know how to distinguish anymore. Even if we'd mentioned them already, I would need to bring them up this week because there's another story that fucking follows on from that in a minute. But Microsoft has laid off 1,900 people across Xbox and Activision Blizzard. Hooray! That's approximately 8% of its gaming workforce. That's brutal. Phil Spencer uh, said in, in an internal email seen by The Verge that this was a painful decision. I don't think it was. We're going to get to a story in a minute. I don't think this was a painful decision for them. Painful for whom? Yeah. You can read the email, but it's like, blah, blah, blah. Aligning a strategy and executing a plan with a sustainable cost structure that will support our growing business and setting priorities and blah, 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 blah. 2,000 people lost their jobs. That's the end goal of it. Now, there's some... There's a couple of stories that have that have come out of this. First of all, it seems like basically everyone in, in Blizzard's customer support department is gone. For any problems you have with Blizzard, they famously have, like, very good customer support for, like, you know, if you're having an issue with your World of Warcraft account or whatever. It was famously very easy to get in touch with an actual human who could help with shit. And that whole team's just been laid off. There has been suggestion that a lot of Xbox's team that handles production of physical games has been laid off. And some people are looking at that and the leaked roadmap that suggested that they are releasing Xbox consoles mid-generation that just won't have access to disk drives and going, oh god, are we seeing layoffs to do with Xbox trying to expedite the the future of not having disk copies of games? Just a big old fucking layoffs left, right, and center. It shouldn't be particularly surprising that immediately following the largest merger in the history of this industry, the resulting company would lay off redundancies or claim redundancies. That's to be expected. I do think it is interesting the specific groups of people that are being let go. Yeah. That don't necessarily seem like redundancies, like the, you know, physical yeah. product production group. Like, yeah. like they tried to slip that in among expected layoffs that result from a merger. Yeah. Also, there is another news story this week that would really suggest that, like, they probably could have afforded not to lay off all these people. Microsoft shared its Q2 2024 financial results. And apparently they've had significant revenue gains across their gaming division, including a 61% increase in Xbox content and services revenue following their Activision Blizzard uh, acquisition. Money's gone real up since they bought ABK. They've got so much more money coming in now. They better celebrate with a round of layoffs. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's how they're going to justify increasing that number again. Line go up, as it always do. Well, yeah, like, no matter how much money they're making now, it won't be long until they're like, okay, well, make even more now. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to have to do the old, like, indulge in layoffs again. Yeah. Line went up, but we had to spend money for line to go up. So lay everyone off to account for the money we spent making the money go up. Yeah, make line go up more. And make other line down less, please. Yeah. God's sake. Also, it wouldn't be 
us talking about video game industry layoffs if we didn't bring up Embracer Group again. Mm. Uh, Idos Montreal has uh, has confirmed 97 jobs have been lost at the studio as Embracer cancels a Deus Ex game that was two years deep into development. Sounds about right. Yeah, so Idos Montreal previously had 481 employees. This is nearly a fifth of the company gone. There's no real explanation as to why the layoffs or why the cancellation of the project, other than the obvious we can assume, which is it's not ready to sell yet, which means it's not making us money yet, and we are two billion in the hole because we thought we were getting the Saudi money, so gotta scrap some projects somewhere. Yeah. Um... Mm. The people still at the company will apparently be working on a a new original franchise, uh, original project of some kind, rather than making another Deus Ex. But at least for the time being, Deus Ex is another victim of the got bought up by Embracer, oops, we can't make those anymore. I, I'm actually heartened on some level by the knowledge that there were these two projects going on at the company a Deus Ex game and an original IP, and they dropped the Deus Ex game. I there is something to be said for that. That's at least positive. I mean, because you would you would expect that they'd go with the safe bet, and you know, quote quote unquote safe bet in a Deus Ex game. But yeah, yeah. I think people have heard of a relative safe bet. <laughs> See, yeah, yeah, more layoffs. Well, we got more of them as well. Sega of America's laying off 61 people next month. Mm. Mm-hmm. Good, yeah. good for them, I yeah. guess. Something um, for them to celebrate, isn't it? We know about this in advance because apparently there is something called the Californian Worker Adjustment and Retraining Notification Notice, which does require employees to be given 60 days notice of big layoffs. Well, that's good because one of the, you know, one of the shit things about layoffs is, and, you know, I've spoken to devs where this is a thing, like, they hear about it for weeks, months even, before it happens, and it's all, like, whispered about and not confirmed and keeps them all on their fucking, like, toes. Mm Mm-hmm. For months with undue extra stress. It's like, just fucking get it out there. It's still fucking horrible. Why make it it worse by dragging it out? But they might produce more while under that pressure, you see. So you can maximize the production of the team under stress and get the most you can out of that individual or group of individuals that you're going to eliminate as well. And then on you go. Everyone knows stressed work is good work. I forgot to talk about the worst thing about those Xbox layoffs, by the way, that this has just reminded me of. Uh, Apparently Xbox was being so fucking bad about communicating who was or was not being laid off. People were turning to fucking Jason Schreier to DM and ask, do you know if I'm losing my job? Oh my god. Wow. You seem to know more right now about who's getting laid off and who isn't than I do, than like I'm being told. Do I have a job? That's amazing. That's fucking terrifying. Stunning. Right. God, god damn. We had another story this week of, uh, you know you know how it's becoming the norm for games to be put on sale early if you pay extra money so you can have them before everyone else? Like, that's a thing. Uh, the newest one of those was uh, uh, Suicide Squad Killed the Justice League, which you could get three days early by paying, I think the deluxe edition was like £100 or something. Are either of you aware what happened to people who tried to boot this game up when they paid extra to play it three days early? I have a feeling I'm going to be very amused by it. 
<laughs> I know. So this. <laughs> yeah, so people, bo- you know, download the game, boot it up, and click new game. And instead of being met with like the opening cutscene and the start of the game, we're clicking new game and finding like a message popping up going, "Congratulations on completing the story. Welcome to the post game," where they just had access to ridiculous amounts of gear and the whole game was complete. Wow! So people who spent money early got new game plus <laughs> they 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 got no choice about being in new game that's plus. amazing Here you go yeah new for some reason and it wasn't happening to everyone but for a reasonably large number of people clicking new game was just putting them into like some presumably developer created like post game save file if you buy the game early it'll even finish it for you i love it right so the devs then had to take the game offline for several hours to fix this during the window of time where people had paid extra to be playing it early. <laughs> so the end result of this is that anyone who bought that very expensive edition is now being refunded £16 to Amazing. say sorry for... We know, we know we upcharged you for early access and then you couldn't early access it during all of that time sorry about that it's always a good idea to alienate the most strident dedicated customers you could possibly have in as strong a way as possible i i swear to god this pre-release shit it's gonna backfire oh a thousand percent i've been saying for a while this is this is the new thing that needs to be like don't don't let this be the new norm because it's not gonna be good for the industry Last one will end up on a on a, a slightly uh, s- uh, less big company story. Bloodborne Cart doesn't get to be called Bloodborne Cart anymore. Yeah, I saw this. This fucking yeah. It's another one of those situations where it's like would they have to pursue it, what have you? But it sucks. <laughs> the timing is what sucks. Because for anyone who doesn't know. The Bloodborne PS1 remake project that happened, God, was that that was a couple of years ago now, right? Yeah, I played it um, 2022, I want to say. Yeah, so uh, this is from uh, Lilith, uh, who who made this very good uh, D- PS1 remake of Bloodborne mm. that went all the way up to the first boss, I think, if I remember right. Uh, yep. And basically since then has been working on Bloodborne Kart, a kart racer based on Bloodborne. And it's been in development since early 2022, so like two years near enough now. And it was like two or three days away from being released. And then finally the Sony notification came saying, hey, you can't put the word Bloodborne on this, sorry about that. I'm in two minds about the situation, because I'm like... I'm always of the mind that if you are making a fan project using someone else's IP, the the smartest thing you can do is not talk about it until it's out there, because then at that point it's too late for them to stop it spreading. But I can also understand why when you released a Bloodborne PS1-style parody project, not even a parody, just a, 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 a sort of downporting, and not only did Sony not stop that project in development... People who worked on Bloodborne shared it positively. Yeah. And, like, were clearly aware of it and were a fan of it. And then you start making your silly little Bloodborne cart, and you're nearly two years into development and no one said anything. I can see why you would go, I'm fine to blog about my development process on this, because I can probably take the lack of action on the first project or this one as a sign that, like, I'm not going to be stopped. Yeah, it's sort of mixed messages. 
Yeah. If this had been, like, announced and been, like, a week or two into, like, updates about and Sony had stepped down and gone, nah, sorry, that would have been one thing. But to leave it two years and to shut it down, like, days before it's meant to go out, it's like, that sucks. But the positive that's coming out of it is that Lilith has basically said, like, hey, it's going to be a little delayed, but I'm going to tweak it enough that it is legally distinct enough that it complies with what PlayStation's asking for. But at that point, I will have full legal control over it and can put it up for sale, for example, as opposed to having to give it away for free. And, like, that's the silver lining, is that it won't be the thing that it was going to be, but it will be something unique that can be entirely entirely owned. And you got to see the positives where you can on it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad there's that positive. And I think there will always be an association between it the final product and quote unquote bloodborne cart. Well, it's gotten so much good publicity already, and this will just like make people more aware of it. I think it'll work out okay. Yeah. I think so. I will say I did have a chuckle at one of uh, Lilith's tweets because the day after this news happened, we got the announcement that PlayStation's doing one of their state of play, like, you know, Nintendo Direct style things, which will have aired by the time people hear this episode. Uh, and Lilith's response was, PlayStation has the opportunity to have the funniest trailer announcement tomorrow. <laughs> and I'm like, good, good. The, the humor there is good. I appreciate it. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad some good can come out of it. But yeah, hey, companies, if you're going to shut down fan projects, shut them down early. Don't let people get years into making them. Yeah, it's not like they didn't know. This has been very public. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed, there's been every opportunity to go stop. I did see someone exclaiming, like, surprise that Sony is acknowledging Bloodborne. (laughs) (laughs) People are still bitter about that lack of a PC port. There is part of me that goes, is the timing just really sucky on Lilith's part? And, like, by the time that people hear this, are we going to be like, oh yeah, Bloodborne PC finally got announced, and they're like, oh god, we're actually doing something with Bloodborne, we've got to step on it? It'd be nice. I don't think it's that. Yeah. And the last one I'll very quickly touch on, very much a story of damning with faint praise. You know how the Persona series has like a bit of a problem of recurring punchline transphobia? Mm. Mm. Like, like a lot of the Persona games, there's at least one time where like a little transphobic joke happens. And historically, Atlas have not been good about like addressing that in their re-releases of games. Persona 5, for example, you know, the original release, the the implication was these these homosexuals are going to fuck your teens. And then they did the royal re-release of it, and they're like, ah, oh, we fixed it now. Now the implication is drag queens are going to forcibly trans your teens. That's better, right? Persona 3's just had a re-release, and they actually kind of fixed one. Oh, shit. The original Persona 3 has a quest line where it's like, ah, the boys are trying to hit on girls, and then at the end, oh, that one turned out to be a trans runaway screaming. Uh. What they've done in the re-release, and like... Sure, it's it's sidestepping the problem, but I'll fucking take sidestepping the problem with Atlas's track record. They've replaced that interaction with, they go to hit on a girl, and it turns out she's a conspiracy theorist who believes that the sun isn't real. The sun was replaced in the 1980s, and you have to buy her special sunscreen because it's the only thing that can protect you from the fake the fake sun's not-quite-UV rays that are going to get you. Incredible. And that's what they run away from in, in- fear. Incredible. Right? That's inc- that's amazing. Right? It's such a better joke. 
it's it's such a more amusing joke that isn't like punching down on anyone. And if they're still gonna have like, look, the end of this quest has to be they try and hit on someone, it goes wrong, they run away. A conspiracy theorist who believes the sun is fake. Yeah, it's pretty good. Like I enjoy. If you'd have got me to guess how they changed it, I wouldn't <laughs> have guessed. They took it out entirely and put a sun conspiracy theorist in its place. Yeah, buy her special sunscreen. That is so it's the only random. Thing that'll keep you safe. That's amazing. And like, look, I've seen some people go like, you know, th- there are ways you could have changed this that could have kept trans rep in there and had good trans rep. And I'm like, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, but I don't trust Atlas. When they try and make little tweaks while not taking away queer identity, they just reinforce different queer phobic beliefs. They're just not very good in that regard. Yeah. I would rather just see them put a different joke that doesn't punch down on the trans community in, in there. If it's not their wheelhouse, and they clearly have not demonstrated a willingness to go outside of their existent bubble to, you know, portray these characters in a way that reflects people in the community and, and the reality of it, uh, they shouldn't. Yeah. Weirdos are in their wheelhouse. I'll tell you another thing that makes it, like, really click is rather than just take it out or, like, try and do it but a bit different, the people that normally complain about censorship and, oh, they made it worse, like, they show their ass even more if they complain about, like, a rather unfunny joke being replaced with a legit good one. Right. Like, they put the effort in to make it a different but but a better sort of, of, it's better writing. And they get to be represented now for a change. Why can't they appreciate that? Yeah. <laughs> if nothing else, it's a nice, pleasant surprise that I look at an Atlas game and go, oh, this release of this game, I don't have to give the caveat of it's a good game. There is that one moment of transphobia I've got to warn you about. I don't have to give that caveat this time. And for Atlas, that's a that's a big old thumbs up if you, you made it that far. So yeah, I think that's everything for this week. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Laura! Me? What else have you done? Ah! Ah! Well, you can find all my stuff at Laura K. Buzz everywhere. You you know where to find me. Laura K. Buzz in all the places you'll find stuff. Um, This week I've got a interview going up with uh, Jeffrey Bunting, who is a games journalist that has done stuff for places like Wired, talking about accessibility, where we have like a little 25-minute video chat about... Uh, migraines and video game accessibility and that's a little lovely chat that'll be up this week i've also got a video going up on friday about um cross-platform controller support and the battle that's been going on for a couple of years between disabled gamers needing access to controllers not supposed to work with specific consoles and the fact that the only people making that support available are cheat device manufacturers and the back and forth battle that's going on there uh, so look forward to that on Friday. Um, what about you, Conrad? Where are you? Well, on you can find me at Conrad Zimmerman on Instagram and Blue Sky. You can hang out with me on Twitch at twitch.tv slash thatconradzimmerman. You can buy anti-capitalist propaganda from me and Jimquisition merchandise, including Poundin' It t-shirts. And we're going to have a new shirt in there soon. Uh, that's all at mercenarycreative.com. And everything I do online gets supported through Patreon at patreon.com slash fistshark. And do you know who else has a Patreon? Stephanie Sterling. 
Uh, yeah, patreon.com slash jimquisition. Um, don't have anything else to report at the moment, really. So thank you all for listening, is what I will say. Thank you all for listening, supporting the show, all of that. We will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.